Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, you could stand. But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to invite Aaron on up, and let's pray together. Dear Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways in which we can know you and talk to you, um, especially through the Psalms. Um, thank you for the preparation Aaron has put into this sermon. I pray that you would speak through him, um, empower him to preach your word this morning. Um, please open our hearts to, to know you, to know your grace and your love and your redemption. Um, help us to accept that grace. Help us to open our hearts to all that you're giving us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Hannah. Well, good morning, Cars. So good to see all the guests today. Um, most of the time, when I'm writing sermons, the hardest part is the title. I always have a tumultuous time titling my sermons. And even going back to, you know, when I'm studying in school, I've got my, you know, stack of preaching textbooks and trying to figure out what to call this assignment that I'm turning in. Um, the way that we preach here at Chorus is called expository preaching. So meaning we uh, generally will walk through whole books at a time, passage by passage, verse by verse. This week is a little bit of an exception to our Matthew series that we'll do every month in the psalm. Um, but the goal is to always keep the text of Scripture central to our worship um, and to our lives. And so my instinct when I title the sermon is just to have the reference verse be the title. Quick, easy, right to the point. You see it online, you're like, I know what the sermon's about. It's about Psalm 130. Uh, and every week after I preach, Benga will shoot me a text when he uploads the sermon to the website. And it says, hey, what's the title of your sermon? And I'll say, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. And every week he tells me, try again. <laughs> and then I just panic for a second and I type, uh, salt and light. Those are words that are in the passage. Uh, that'll work. Make it so, yeah, that'll work. But this is not the case this time. Bango won't need to text me tomorrow because I'm going to tell him, I'm going to tell y'all the title of the sermon. And it's The Pilgrim's Promise. Why The Pilgrim's Promise? Uh, well, to, to state it clearly, um, this psalm is a psalm written by a pilgrim for pilgrims. And the climactic stanza is a promise of God's character from the psalmist to his people. 
from the psalmist to us. And now, when I say the word pilgrim, uh, I don't want you to just picture, you know, English separatists with belt buckles on their hats or anything like that. Um, think of pilgrim in the broader sense. Someone who's a traveler or a wanderer. Better yet, think of those words of the Bible itself gives us. Sojourners, exiles, people who have left or been sent away from their homes. Those who, like Abram, they're called by God to live in tents in a land that doesn't belong to them yet. Or those like the people of Israel who were removed from their homes because they failed to be faithful to God and his promises. Or those, as Peter calls us, who are sent by God into a hostile world with a message of hope. And so as a way to kind of keep that identity of sojourner, exile, pilgrim, as a way to keep that identity front and center in his people's minds, uh, God gave his people three feasts every year where they were supposed to pack up their stuff, no matter where they were, and make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate. We read about these feasts all over the Old Testament. The big one is Passover, uh, but then you also have something called the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. And then traditionally, this section of Psalms, Numbers 120 through 134. These are the songs that people would sing as they travel through their pilgrimage. You might notice a, a heading in your Bible at the beginning of these songs. It was on the screen for us. It says, a song of ascents. This, you know, variety of songs. It comes from the fact that towards the end of your pilgrimage, you would have to ascend... You'd have to go up into Jerusalem, the original city on a hill. And then once you were there, you'd have to ascend the steps of the temple where you worship God. And so let's investigate this song together. Uh, this song, I, I think more than most, really has a pretty straightforward outline. Uh, if you're reading from a physical copy of your Bible, it will probably be even easier to see. Um, but these eight verses, they go paired together as couplets. One and two, three and four, five and six, seven and eight. And so here's how I want us to see each stanza. Verses one and two, this is going to be the pilgrim's plea. Verses three and four is going to be the pilgrim's problem. He's expressing his, what is causing him to flee. Uh, verses 5 and 6 is the pilgrim expressing his patience to God. And then the song culminates with 7 and 8, this promise. And so we'll walk through each of these. We'll think about what is the songwriter experiencing, and then we'll think about how we might sing this song. After all, we're exiles, we're sojourners, we're pilgrims in this world as well. We'll see why I think this is such a perfect song for us to sing together. For the psalmist, he's expressing 
his very last hope that God will deliver him and his people from their sins. For us, we can rejoice that Jesus has dealt with our sins and that we, he, will make all things right that we've messed up. So that first stanza then, the pilgrim's plea. We see it right here, verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The depths. When we see this phrase, this term in the Psalms, what are we supposed to think? Being in the depths is more than just being down in the dumps. Whether it's Jacob or Joseph or David or another psalm writer, we see biblical figures say that they're in the depths. The depths is language of death. It's language of death. You see jo uh, Jacob mourning Joseph when he thinks his son has been killed by a wild animal. He says he's in the depths. This is grave language. It's death language. It's not just someone who's been inconvenienced or irritated, although we can certainly call out to God in those moments. This is someone who's on the brink of death in some way. Maybe it's physically, maybe it's spiritually. Maybe he and his family are going to Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths. These are um, kind of harvest related celebrations. But you know what? For this guy, for his family, it wasn't really a great year for farming. It's a long, hot summer. Not a lot of rain. Family, the village, they barely had enough food to survive. And as their pilgrim named Jane, they ran out of food two nights ago. He's crying out to the depths. He's on the brink of physical starvation, perhaps. Or maybe the songwriter is on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover or around the Day of Atonement. He realizes that spiritually he's full of sin and therefore on the brink of death. He says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. From the brink of death itself I cry to you, O Lord. <clears throat> Let's park here for just a second, uh, because I know that as a church, we're not a people who are unaccustomed to death. Maybe it's recent, maybe it's in the past, maybe it's a family member or a friend, maybe it's someone that you really didn't know that well at all, but you poured some of your life into this person can be really, really tempting for us as people who, number one, live in a culture that idolizes happiness and comfort, and number two, as people who really, really do have the hope of the gospel, it can be tempting for us to skip over genuine crying out from the depths. Death is, wow, something that has happened or will happen to everyone, also the most unnatural thing that could possibly be. It's the most unnatural 
thing that anyone could experience. God didn't make us to experience death. We weren't designed to experience death, but we do. And so we're seriously right to be broken about it when it hits close to home, when it touches us in direct ways. For crying, for crying out loud, Jesus himself, not five minutes before raising his own friend from the dead, took time to weep, to sob over the fact that someone that he made, someone that he loved, not just as a creation of his, but as a friend of his, had been vandalized by the effect of sin in our world. When we find ourselves in the depths, it's all that we have to cry out to God for mercy, like the psalmist, for God's compassion and his care and his comfort. That's the plea of this wandering pilgrim. And now in the next stanza, we'll see the pilgrim make clear his problem, along with a foreshadowing of the solution. Uh, verses 3 and 4 say, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God, if you kept track of everyone's sins, who would there be who could come close to worship you? Who could complete this pilgrimage and walk right into the temple? It's a rhetorical question on the psalmist's part because God does, in fact, know our sins. And, in fact, no one is able to stand before him. Oftentimes, the, the psalmist, this is not an unfamiliar kind of song for us to read. It's very similar to other songs, Psalm 42, Psalm 69. The, the psalmist will often share the reason for his crying out to God. Sometimes it's grief. Sometimes it's homesickness. Sometimes it's persecution. And here we see the problem behind this plea is sin. But not just sin generally, like how the whole you know, creation is affected on a cosmic level because of sin, but iniquity is what he says. Iniquity is a word that we don't use very often. We just say everything bad is sin. And that's, that's true, everything bad is sin. But iniquity is a specific word for sin. It describes grossly immoral, unjust, or wicked behavior. It's not the depersonalized force of sin in our world, but rather the real life, in real time, sins that we commit against God, against ourselves, and against other people. So what has the psalmist crying out from the depths? It's the iniquity of himself and his people. Now, I think most of us probably relate to the former designation pretty easily. This personal iniquity is when we, we lie, we cheat, we steal, we commit idolatry, or we have pride in our hearts. All those other things that are, you know, kind of explicitly don't do this. But the psalmist is also affected 
by the sin of his people as well. This verse implies that verses 7 and 8 confirm it. This kind of sin, this kind of iniquity, this kind of shared iniquity is one that we have a little bit more trouble comprehending. But the Bible talks about it regularly. It's what the whole books of Amos and Nahum are about. The sins of whole nations, the sins of these people groups, even God's own people. We have, we have a very kind of individualistic mindset as, as Western people. Um, we're very, we're all, you know, we're individual actors making individual actions. And most of the time, you know, that's a pretty functional, solid way of, of living in the world. Um, but what about when we participate, or even in seemingly small, insignificant ways, in the cultures and the communities that we create that are stirring up iniquity in our world? What about when we support or we fund or we give power to people who perpetrate wickedness and injustice? I know this is probably where a lot of preachers would start going on a rant about politics or government, um, but that one's too easy, so I'm going to zig where everyone else zags. I want you to think about your family. Think about your families. Does anyone have a bully in their family? Someone who will make cutting comments to people when you get together for Memorial Day, Fourth of July barbecue? When you, when you, when I, when the rest of our family, when we just kind of excuse these things by saying, well, that's just, that's, you know, Uncle so-and-so. It's just how he is, you know? It's from a different time. He has different way of seeing things. But when we don't stand up or defend our hurt family member, how much of that are we sharing in as a family, as a group? Or think about maybe your job or your business. Um, my wife, Caitlin, and I, the other day, uh, we were watching some old reruns of that medical drama, House. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. Um, if you've never seen it, it's pretty, uh, like the premise is pretty simple. Dr. House is you know, this pain-addicted doctor, and he's also totally brilliant, and he always, almost always, figures out you know, that one in a million disease that people walk in with every week. <laughs> <laughs> and he's also a complete jerk to everyone around him. Every episode, you know, House has some kind of standoff with the, you know, hospital director, and it, the conversation always ends something like, you know, Dr. House, your bedside manner is terrible. But darn it if you don't get results. <laughs> and they just, like, go back to normal, and he you know, goes back to the lunchroom and, you know, treats his patients and his, you know, coworkers terribly. Um, think about your workplace or your job. When we make hires or promotions or train people, do we operate like that sometimes? Do we establish, do we empower people who are abusive jerks to everyone around them just because, well, they got that client list or they always seem to seal the deal somehow? You may not be directly hurting the, the, the people on that team or whatever, but how much guilt 
does the next level of supervisor share by compromising and not putting a stop to those harmful behaviors? These kinds of kind of corporate sins are, are typically you know, these sins of omission, things that we know we should do but we fail to do, ways that we fail to obey, um, oftentimes, especially in books like Amos and Nahum, it's like when people don't step out and stand in for people who are being hurt. If God marked our iniquities, could we stand? The third stanza expresses what I'm sure is a, a pretty common experience, a relatable feeling for a lot of us, and that's the pilgrim's patience. Verses 5 and 6. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. The psalmist's soul, it waits for the Lord. That is, his whole being, everything about him, everything that makes him who he is, is waiting for God to act in some way. To forgive his sins, to forgive the sins of his people, to show him compassion to rescue him from the depths. He's waiting on God and hoping in the promises of his word. Church, if there's any person to wait for and any place to put our hope, it's in God and in his word. The God who never changes and the word that never fails to accomplish his purposes. And then I love this picture that the psalm writer gives us. More than the watchman, more than the watchman waits for the morning. And then he repeats himself for emphasis. That's what the poets would do. That's how their, their poetry worked. Anytime you see a double word or a double phrase, it's like, I'm waiting for the Lord more than the watchman waits for the morning. Yeah, you heard me right. Even more than the watchman waits for the morning. And so, how does the watchman wait for the morning? I've got, I know I've got some friends in here, maybe they're watching online today, um, who have worked or currently worked the third shift. That's why they're watching online, because they're tired. <laughs> and uh, I know there are university students in here um, who have pulled all-nighters to finish their projects by the deadline. I did that way too many times. Humans are not, by nature, nocturnal creatures. We're designed to be resting when the sun goes down, not working. And so even if you've done it for decades, my dad worked third shift for a long time when I was little, even if you do it for a long time, it's tough on the body and on the mind. Um, everything in this night watchman is trying to get him to rest, to go to sleep. And so when daybreak finally dawns, that's exactly what he gets to do. But then, on another level, completely, the night watchmen are excited because um, well, they're not out there just looking at stars. They're the first line of defense against an invading army. They're the people in you know, the Lord of the Rings. They like the beacons and they call for aid. Uh, the 
watchmen, they stand on the walls, they stand at the gates, patrolling in case some kind of threat were to ambush them. So for the watchmen, sunrise doesn't just mean sleep, finally. It meant that there was one more day that they had not been attacked, which is a good thing. How desperate is the kind of waiting that the watchmen experience? Is that the way you, is that the way we wait on the Lord together? Uh, I can remember before I worked in ministry stuff, before I did ministry stuff, I waited tables for years. And in general, it's a fun job. It's not for everyone. Um, but every now and then, you'd have a dinner shift that was utterly awful. So awful. The kitchen's slow. All the kids are not going to eliminate on the table and get everything wet. Um, you know, the tables, they drink too much, and then they get mad. But I would always have to tell myself, no matter how busy you are, no matter how crazy and irritating this night gets, eventually it will be 1 o'clock in the morning, and everyone has to leave. It can only be bad for four more hours max. And then we lock the doors, we clean everything up, we go home. Worst case scenario, I'm still going home at 1.30 in the morning. Thank goodness. One commenter, uh, Derek Kidner, said this. He said, night may sometimes seem endless, but morning is certain, and its time is determined. We can rely on God. We can wait on God. Because like the sun rising, there's never been a time in all of history where God did not come through on one of his promises. Where he did not come through for his people. Faithful. This takes us right into that final stanza, verses 7 and 8. Psalmist says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Israel there being the people of Israel. I said that at the beginning, uh, the title of this sermon is The Pilgrim's Promise. And maybe it's a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, because truly, this is a promise that God first gave to the psalmist. It's God's promise. And the psalmist calls us to hope alongside of him in that promise. I know that we've talked about this before, um, but biblical hope. It's so much richer. It's so much deeper than the way our world talks about hope. In our world, you talk to your coworker or your neighbor, hope is some kind of positive vibe. It's a blind optimism in human progress. But can I be real with you for a second? That kind of hope is utterly worthless when you live in a world where mass shootings happen on a weekly basis. And it's completely misplaced when it comes to finding out that even religious institutions have covered up things like sexual abuse 
wimpy worldly hope cannot sustain or save us when we're in the depths. So it's a good thing that that's not what the psalmist is calling us to. Here's what Eugene Peterson says about hope in the psalms. Hope does not mean doing nothing. That's not a fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned tasks confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. And hoping is not dreaming. It's not spitting an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom or our pain. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. It is imagination put in the harness of faith. Cards, when we have this kind of hope, far from dismissing the sin and iniquity in our world or paralyzing us into submission, our hope in the Lord empowers us. It actually is the thing that spurns us into all kinds of action. Because we know that, like Peterson said, we trust that God will provide the meaning and the conclusion. Amen. We live the way Jesus lived in his sin-torn world, in our sin-torn world. We remain faithful to God. And we already know every day, like the sunrise, that God will be faithful to his promises and to his people. And you know, it's, it's not just that God is faithful. It's also how he's faithful. Carus, I love these verses. Sometimes a passage of scripture will just kind of hit you in the right way at the right moment of your life. And it sticks with you in a unique way. These two verses at the end are like that for me. Um, they show us how God is faithful. Not just that he's faithful. They go right back to his very nature. God is full of steadfast love. Back in verse 4, we're reminded that it's with God that there's forgiveness. And then I love how these last words of verse 7 are translated in a variety of Bible translations. Ours says, you know, with him is plentiful redemption. Others say, with him is full redemption. With him there is redemption in abundance. With him, redemption overflows. I once heard a pastor from Atlanta, John Omuchekwa, he explained the, the plentiful, overflowing, abundant generosity of God's redemption like this. He said, we're really used to ordering at Chipotle. We've all been at Chipotle. You go in, you're on a budget, especially now. And so you're like, okay, I'll get chicken instead of steak. That's all. But then the person behind the counter, they take their you know, tiny little ladle and they kind of scoop up some chicken and before they put it on there, they notice that there's just a couple extra cubes on there. And so they shake it off, put it in your burrito bowl, send you down to cheese or whatever. He's stingy with the good stuff. He's stingy. But church, if Jesus were making that burrito bowl, 
Stay with me. <laughs> he gets out that extra large spoon, that extra large scooper, and he gets all the way down into the bottom of the pan. He pulls out this massive scoop. But that's not even good enough. So he crams it down in there, goes back for more. He piles that burrito bowl high. There's so much there that your little flimsy cardboard bowl, it just can't hold it all. It's falling apart. It's, it can't contain it. It's tumbling from the top of your burrito bowl. You sit down at your table, you take a bite, and there's just steak and guacamole everywhere. You gotta you got like pull out your shirt and try and catch it all before it hits the floor. There's more when it comes to God's redemption. There's more than you could have ever paid for. There's more than you could ever eat. There's more than you ever thought you even wanted. Chorus, yeah. this song, it reaches its climax in a call to hope and a declaration of God's very character with a focus on his abundantly redemptive nature. The psalmist says that the Lord will redeem his people. Future tense word, will. That was his last hope, that God would someday deliver him and his people from their sins. My friends, it is my joy to share with you that that hope of the psalmist has already been realized. Absolutely. There are other things and other ways that we are still called to hope in Jesus and we look to his return in the future. But we don't look to the future for God to deal with our sins. When Jesus died on the cross, our sin, our iniquity, was fully and perfectly punished. Jesus experienced the depths that the psalmist talks about, the death that we'd otherwise be diving headlong into. And as good of news as that is to hear about Jesus taking our place in death, it actually doesn't stop there. After three days, Jesus rose back to life. And in the way that we shared our death with Jesus, he shares his life with us when we follow him, when we trust him. Church, that is the gospel. The king gives his life for us so that we can have a place in his kingdom. Even when we're in the darkest of depths, we can rejoice because Jesus has dealt with our sin. And we know that he will make right everything that we've messed up. Let's pray. Father, would you hear the cry of Karsh Church today? God, we're in need of your mercy. Whatever kind of uh, deep depths we find ourselves in today, uh, this week, this summer, um, God, we can't get ourselves out. We're stuck. We're stuck down there. And it's only by your compassion, by your grace, that we have hope. Lord, would you strengthen us by that hope today? Don't let us settle for flimsy hope, but draw us back to Jesus. Our hope 
might not always be strong, God, but the one that we hope in is unshakable, and he can redeem us. Amen. At Chorus, um, we partake of the Lord's Supper every time we gather together. It's a symbol that Jesus himself